These are the words of the Lord from Romans 8, verses 12 through 14. Don't worry, you will not be standing long this morning. Romans 8, 12 through 14 says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There are two types of people in this world. Those who are good at directions and those who get lost coming home from the grocery store because they move the landmark you relied on. Now, in an experiment in self-awareness, raise your hand if you're the latter, bad, uh, good at directions. Raise your hand if you are good at directions, okay? Now, raise your hand if you're the latter, you're bad at directions, okay? Pretty even in the room. Now, if you didn't raise your hand because you think you're in the middle, you're not, you're bad at directions. <laughs> That's just how it goes. Now, I saw some people look around looking at your neighbor. That's because most of the time, homes are often a a mixture of both of these types. Same with the Long family. My dad was a directional guru. In fact, we would make fun of him because on his spare time, he would study maps for fun. For fun. And I remember as a kid, I remember we'd go on a trip or something, and we'd be in the back seat, and my dad would just get in the car and drive. And I remember looking at my brother going, how does he know where to go? He just knows. It would be hour after hour, and he'd make turn after turn, and we'd just be like, we were in awe of that. My dad just knew how to get there, and that was it. And then you have my mother. Now, my mom gets lost outside of a three-mile radius of her house. That's pretty much how she functions. For her, the greatest invention the world has ever produced was the GPS, right? Yes, we got got some amens for the GPS, right? Now, she plugs in the address and then completely, totally, utterly relies on that British voice to tell her where to go. Now, if that thing ever malfunctioned and sent her to Mexico, it would take until about Kansas before she would realize something might be wrong. I mean, the the depths of, of, of this woman's reliance on this machine is sheer amazing. Now, I personally inherited my dad's sense of direction. I like to know where I am. That which I made fun of my father for, now I do. In fact, I actually get a little unnerved when I don't know where I am. Last fall, we uh, flew to North Carolina for my brother-in-law's wedding, and we stayed in this home up in the North Carolina mountains. And for the whole weekend, we were driven around, taken from different events, and we were going up and down and twists and turns, and eventually, I lost my bearings. I didn't know where I was. And if you're good at directions, and and, and this is you, you know what I'm talking about. It was unnerving to not know where I was. If I had been dropped off in the middle of the road, I would have no idea where I was or what to do. And it just, there's something in my spirit that just really uncomfortable with not knowing where I am. 
And so when, when, when we look at the two types of people, when we look at people who are good at directions and bad at directions, a lot of it has this, uh, is about just this kind of internal sense of wanting to know where I am. What is north? What is south? What is east? And what is west? Now, I feel the same is true with the Bible at times. Because sometimes we'll be reading the Bible, and after all the turns and twists and ups and downs, we lose our sense of direction. Where are we? And Romans is one of the harder books to navigate because it's a long, carefully constructed argument that all connects and builds off one another. If you're being honest, we're in Romans 8, and have you sensed this? Do you have this feeling like I have sometimes, like, wait a minute, where, where are we? I've, I've lost my bearings to the book. It can be easy to lose the forest from the trees in this regard, and then to simply to read verses from Romans in isolation without seeing how the whole thing fits. So this series is dedicated all to the chapter, all to Romans chapter 8. We're actually going very slowly. That's why we only read three verses. We're going much slower through the book of Romans chapter 8 because it is here that we start to make a turn. And Paul begins to wrap up everything that he's been talking about in the first eight chapters so that by the time we get to chapter 12, which is the major break in, in the book, in the letter, we kind of get those bearings down. And so chapter 8 really is dedicated to summarizing everything and putting it in a nice little bow, a nice little package, if you will. Romans 8, we start to make that turn. And so today, we're, let's get our bearings, if you will. I think it's appropriate as we kind of start, we're about halfway through this book now. It's after Easter, and I think it's time for a good old-fashioned recap. Well, how about you? Let's get our bearings to the book here. Where are we? Because it's here when we, when we start to figure out where we are back in the book, it, then these passages this morning, the rich meaning behind them start to take root. So let's do that together if we will. Pray with me as we begin. God, we just ask that you will help us to see the bigger picture here, Lord. We've been navigating the twists and turns and the ups and downs of this book and some of, our, some of us are asking God, where are we? And so Lord, help us to see the picture. Help us to see the path forward. So that when you tell us this amazing truth in these passages in Romans 8, that they will connect and they'll take root. And we can be encouraged to live the, in the reign of life and not in the reign of death. So help us, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. So if you were with us before, here's a little recap of where we've been so far. The makeup of the Roman church back in those days was both Christians from the Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. Now, Jews were God's chosen people in the Old Testament. Jews had always been the religious insiders, if you will, the ones that were given God's instructions, the one who had the family pedigree, the ones who had it all figured out. And then you had those Gentiles over there. They were the, anyone who wasn't a Jew. They weren't God's chosen people. The historical outsiders, the pagans, the enemy. Now many had converted to Christianity, but let's be honest, they're still Gentiles. They don't do things the way we do them. 
And while these churches were likely started by Jewish converts, eventually the Gentile converts made up a significant portion of the congregation. This was not some insignificant little grouping amongst the larger Jewish population. This was a significant growing in both influence and size. And you can start to see why there started to be some division and some tension brewing in this church. And so this creates a lot of tension. And what the biggest sort of the biggest thing, we've talked about this before, is that in the book of Acts, it talks about uh, a Roman emperor named Claudius, who because of some unrest in, in, in his city in Rome, banished all the Jews for five years. He sent them out of the city for five years. In fact, Paul runs into a few of these Jewish leaders that have been exiled in Acts. That's how he starts to get to know uh, them. He starts to get to know their leadership. He starts to get to know the church in general. And then they're allowed to come back five years later. And what they find is that this Gentile church is a lot different now. Some of those Jewish practices that were so central and important to them, like Sabbath and kosher, all of a sudden weren't being practiced anymore. But they weren't failing or fledgling as a church. This church is actually growing and thriving. And so you're a Jew, you're a Christian, you're a Jewish leader that have started this church. You come back after five years of exile and the church doesn't look the same anymore. And so this tension begins to grow. People disagree about how to follow Jesus. Should we celebrate Sabbath? Should we eat kosher? Is it important to be circumcised? And heightened by their cultural and ethnic differences, Christian Jews were attempting to reclaim their status as the chosen ones. They were the ones that God had chosen to lead this thing, not not these Gentiles. And so there was this brewing that took place in this tension is the central backdrop to Romans. This tension is the reason, but the majority of the reason that Paul writes this letter is to deal and address and talk about this division that's going on in the church and how the gospel unites everyone. And so Paul starts off, I have it here on, on the screen, and you can bring out that, uh, that uh, outline, because that outline will kind of help us walk through the book. But he writes this as sort of his thesis statement, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And this ashamed isn't a general ashamed. It's not like he's saying, um, I'm not ashamed because the world is different and we need to be different too. It's not a general sense of ashamed. The the central context of this is I'm not ashamed to talk to the Gentiles. I'm not ashamed to associate with them. Paul was commissioned and called to go specifically to the Gentile population to bring Jesus to them. And so when Paul writes this, this thesis statement, it's not just this general, hey, don't be ashamed out in the world. While that's also true, The specific context of this statement is I'm not ashamed to go to the Gentiles. I'm not ashamed to bring them in because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone. If they had bold back then, I think he might have bolded that word. Everyone, Jew and Gentile. And so Paul now in the first four chapters of the book is going to lay out what the gospel is. 
He wants to show you, though, in the context of that, that it unites everyone. This gospel is not just for one group of people. This gospel is for everybody. And so he jumps in in the very next verse, and he begins his argument about what the gospel is. And so he says this, and maybe you could think of it, if you see it in your handout, you could think of it as chapters 1 through 4, is revealing God's righteousness. This first section, chapter 1 through 4, is revealing God's righteousness. He says this in verse 17. For the gospel, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness from God is revealed. This gospel, this good news that unites everybody and brings everybody together, this gospel is a righteousness from God that is being revealed. Now, if you remember, we talked about righteousness doesn't necessarily mean a moral uh, standing at its root cause. It doesn't mean a morality. It doesn't mean a set of rules. It doesn't mean you're doing well or you're not doing well. Righteousness at its root means right standing before someone. So when you say, I'm righteous before you, it means that you and I are good. We stand in righteousness towards one another. We're in right standing. Our relationship is intact and is good. So he's saying, you can have a righteousness with God. This is the good news, and this is step one. Let me tell you, Paul says, you can have a righteousness with God. It is revealed in this gospel that is for everyone, because I'm not ashamed to preach it to everyone. But the very next verse, he kind of gives us a cliffhanger. He actually turns face here. Because in the very next verse, he says, a righteousness of God is being revealed, but the wrath of God is being revealed. Very next verse. And if you're reading that, you're going, well, wait a minute here. I thought this was good news. You told me a righteousness from God is being revealed. A good standing before me and God are revealed. But the very next verse, you say a wrath. What is this wrath that you're talking about? And at the end of chapter 1, we find the Gentiles are hopelessly trapped in sin and need to be rescued. This is how he finishes chapter 1. You Gentiles, you are hopelessly trapped in your sin and you need to be rescued. And if you remember, we talked about setting the hook. That Paul is, is laying it on thick for these Gentiles. And if you're a Jew reading this, you're going, oh yeah, Paul, come on, bring it. Lay it on them thick. And they don't realize that Paul has set the hook in the trap because in chapter 2, he turns his attention to the Jew. And he says, you Jews, you need rescue too. But not trying to obey, not from trying to obey the laws of Torah, but you need a rescue from something totally different. You can't do it by obeying the law. You can't do it by uh, being good enough. You can't do it by following all the rules and the laws. You need something different. And so he says the wrath of God is being revealed. And he concludes at the start of chapter 3 by saying a righteousness from God apart from the law has been revealed. You following the line here, the line of thinking? A righteousness from God has been revealed. The wrath of God has been revealed, meaning both of you have not measured up. Both of you can't do it on your own. Both of you can't do it by being good enough. And so he concludes by saying a righteousness from God, which is apart from the law, has been revealed. This right standing is going to have nothing to do with how good you are. And finally, he brings it home. And in fact, it, it's funny, it takes him almost three chapters to explain this. Three chapters to really need to convince his audience that you're not going to do this on your own. 
And so finally, Paul is ready for his crescendo. And he says, a righteousness from God apart from the law is given through faith in Jesus. Through faith in Jesus. Romans 3.22. A righteousness from God apart from the law. You Gentiles who definitely couldn't keep it. And you Jews that tried your darndest, but you definitely didn't either. A righteousness from God comes apart from the law is given through faith in Jesus. This is the synopsis of chapters 1 through 4. Righteousness revealed by God. Or reveals God's righteousness. But then he moves to chapter 5. And the tune changes a bit because now he needs to talk about this reality. So if we, if we accept this reality, if we understand that there's really no difference between us because our righteousness, our right standing before God has nothing to do with my Jewishness or my Gentileness or my behavior or morality or anything like that, well then what is that line? What is that thing that divides, what, what is the thing that distinguishes us if it's not our ethnic or morality in background? And so in chapters 5 through 8, Paul is going to begin to explain what it looks like to live under this new humanity. There is a new humanity at play. This is the good news of the gospel, that through faith in Jesus, not by our efforts, which is oppressive, futile endeavor, is what we all have in common. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone, and it's this gospel that's going to unify the church. It creates a new humanity. No longer is the division between Jew and Gentile, but now new humanity and old humanity. That's the division. Those who live under the new humanity and now those who live under the old humanity. Those who embrace this gospel and those who do not. And this is the idea that he explores in this passage. So he starts in chapter 5, he starts with the very first human, Adam. Now, Adam in Hebrew means humanity. So not only is Adam a real person, but he's a representative of the whole. He's the, he's the patriarch. He's the federal head. And he's in control. And he is, he is uh, commissioned to represent all of us. And obviously, we know the end of that story. He creates this new humanity in Adam. But Adam chooses sin and selfishness. And so that the whole human race faces God's judgment as slaves to sin. But Jesus becomes the patriarch of a new humanity by living in obedience to God so that these new people can be set free. And so Paul writes in, verse, in chapter 5, If by the transgressions of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus? One man death, another man life. Which leads us to chapter 6. Because Paul then reminds these Christians in Rome that choosing to follow Jesus means leaving their old Adam-like way and entering into this new Jesus-like humanity. And he gives the example of baptism as the sacred symbol of that transition from their old humanity that is dead in the water and is then raised to life anew. And so he writes in, in, chapter, in chapter 6, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that we too may live a new life. We were buried in baptism to death of that old way and now we are raised new to a new 
life. You see, the distinction no more is not Jew or Gentile, law-abiding citizen or not. It's this acceptance of the gospel, this righteousness apart from the law through Jesus. So what does it look like now to live into this new humanity? Well, we accept Jesus as our patriarch and we're baptized into this new way. And then we get to chapter 7. Because if creating this new humanity was always God's purpose, what then was the point of God giving Israel all those old commandments, all those old stuffy commandments at the beginning? What was the point of all that? Couldn't we have just skipped that, kind of like a bad movie? Can't we just skip to the end where it got good? Why, why, do we have, why did we have to go through all of that, Paul? Well, he says that the commands of the Torah were good. They showed God's will for how he wanted Israel to live. But, if you read the story, Israel broke all those commands. And the more laws Israel received, in fact, the more they lived out into their old humanity. So God gives them the law in order to show them how to live. But that law, all that law did was just show them how badly they were lawbreakers. The more laws you gave, the more opportunities they had to break them. And they did. I told the story of my uh, son, Micah, and we have to constantly create new laws for him because he invents ways of being bad. He invents naughty ways all the time. So we're constantly like one step behind him and setting new parameters for him. I never told him that when you find Addie's paint that he doesn't want an art show on my bedroom door. We never told him that. He just did it himself. Now we create a rule about that, but all that does is prove he's a rule breaker, right? Like we could create more rules and he'd smile at us and then he'd break them, right? And we do create the rules and we do set up, but the rules are in place to guide his behavior, to guide his life, to guide the way of our family. But of course, the more rules we have, the more opportunity there are to break them, right? And so Paul actually argues in chapter 7 is that God gave us the law not to show us that we could do it, but to show us we can't do it. He gave us an opportunity. He's like, give it a shot. Go for it. Knowing full well it's not going to work. My daughter is learning to ride a bike right now. And uh, it's going okay, I would say. But she's the type of person that just wants to do it, right? She just wants it. She wants to get on a bike and be good at it. And she has no concept of like um, gravity. She, so for her, she'll jump on the bike and want me to let go. And I said, if I let go of this bike and you're not moving, you're just going to fall, right? She, just, she wants to be good at it right away. And so we have to create these rules and create these, these instructions. We have to start with her just feeling the bike tip over and then putting her feet out to catch herself. Because she would literally just... So we have to create this way for her. And she's not good at it. And she will hopefully this summer be, be better at it. But there's a whole set of rules and a process that we have to go through. But all it does is shows her that you're not good at this right now. And God says, you're not good at this right now. You, you can try if you want. Go ahead. Right? She'll say, let go. I want to try. I want to try. And okay, sweetie, you know, let's, let's go to the grass. And we learned our lesson. You're going to listen to daddy now. 
And that's what God did. He said, okay, Israel. All right, you ready to listen now? You ready, ready, for, you ready to hear my instruction? You ready to, to understand the depths of how you can't do this on your own? Okay, now let's talk. So Paul in chapter 7 is describing why we need this, why this new humanity needed the law and why we live in Christ Jesus now, in the freedom who fulfilled the law on our behalf. And so he writes this to conclude, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Right? The commandments that were intended to bring life actually brought death. So Paul says that that this paradox is the point, that God's goal was to make it crystal clear that we can't escape our old humanity and need a new one, a new Adam, a new baptism, a new law. And in this section of Romans, when we get here now to chapter 8, Paul has been contrasting these two ways with using the same two words. Have you picked it up yet in your notes? Life and death. That's really the theme of chapters 5 through 8. He says it again and again and again. There is one way that leads to life, and there is one way that leads to death. When you enter into this new humanity, you are entering into this way of life, and you are leaving behind the ways of, je- of death. In fact, chapters 5 through 7, or cha- excuse me, chapters 5 through 8 uses this word, these words 31 times. In chapter 5, verse 10, 12, 14, 17, 18, 21, In chapter 6, 3, 4, 5, 9, 10, 13, 16, 19, 21, 22, 23. In chapter 7, 5, 9, 10, 11, 13, 24. In chapters 8, 1, 2, 6, 10, 11, and now here in 13. You catching the theme yet? Paul, in the first section, addresses a division that's happening and completely annihilates it. There is no division here. But then he gets to chapters 5 through 8, and he says, but there is a division. There is a division here. There is a separation here. But it's not what you think. You've been fighting amongst yourselves and dividing against yourself. That's not the division. The division is those who have chosen life and those who have chosen death. And if you're in the church and you, are, and you believe in Jesus and if you've accepted this gospel and you're in right standing with your God and you're with others who have done the same, there is no division there because we've got a much bigger division to take care of. We have a much bigger problem to deal with. Will you guys figure out your stuff Right? Can, can we just talk through this? Can we just get this over with? Because we've got a lot bigger fish to fry here. And so now we arrive at this place where Paul begins to culminate this idea of life and death. This is the rain. Paul argues that what unites us, what we have in common, is this life-giving, beautiful, peace-at-your-core, salvific, best-news-ever way of life. And remember, when the Bible talks about death and life, it's never regulated as simply a fixed destination or state. 
The people of the Bible would use the words life and death in a more nuanced way that saw life and death as two different ways of living. You are either under the reign of death with its greed and judgment and pride and measuring up and power-seeking and anxiety-riven and self-absorbed. Get the last word. Always be right. Running to the next toy, the next trip, the next hit. Or you begin to embrace this reign of life where I don't have to win and I don't have to be noticed and I don't crave approval from others and I don't worry about the future and I'm content with what I have and I don't have to be right and my hope is anchored in Christ. And Paul says, will you quit fighting because there's a much bigger divide here that we're after. So what's it going to be? Is it going to be life Or is it going to be death? How many times do I have to write that word in four chapters before you'll see it? Are you going to choose life? Are you going to choose death? So now we arrive at our passage and it serves as a culmination of all sorts of everything that we've been talking about. Hear it now. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body you will live. And then that's the last time for a while that he uses those words. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of your body, you will live. You see, you don't have to live like this anymore. And for those who have embraced this way of life, they are the true sons of God. Now, in that last verse we looked at, some translations might say children of God, and the reason is, is because this term really is gender neutral. The nuanced meaning of sons in Hebrew is children. So women are just as much included as men. But when you translate it children, you lose an important connection point, because sons of God were actually a literal term back then. It was a precise term. And it begins in Genesis, where most things usually begin. When they read that God made Adam in his likeness. And then just a few chapters later, it says that God created man and made him in the likeness of God. He created the male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and named him Seth. So they concluded as they read this, God created Adam and Adam created Seth. So if Seth is the son of Adam, then Adam must be the son of God. And they concluded that must mean that then everyone in the line of Seth also becomes a son of God. In fact, Adam is described as the son of God in Luke's genealogy in chapter 3. It says the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Thus, all his descendants would be considered sons of God too. But then they kept reading, and they read in Exodus, as God is preparing Moses to speak before Pharaoh, and he says, Israel, my firstborn son, let my son go. So it was God who fathered Israel, and the Lord called Israel into existence and out of slavery, then Israel then is God's own preeminent son. 
Then they started reading in the prophets, and they find in Hosea, he adds another layer to it. So Hosea confirms that the entire nation of Israel is regarded as God's son. It says this in Hosea 11, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. But then the prophet adds that each of the Israelites individually are the sons of the living God. And so as they continue to read and continue to read, they put the whole picture together and they said, now that must mean that we as Israel, as Jews, as God's chosen people, are the sons of God. And they use that term. That was a specific term. We are Israel, the Jews. We are the sons of God. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if the Roman Jews used the very term when arguing with their Gentile brothers. Oh, you haven't been holding a Hanukkah service? Oh, well, maybe we should. You know, we're the sons of God and all, you know, maybe we should. Oh, you, you brought ham to the church potluck? Hmm. We don't really do that. You know, we're the sons of God and all, so maybe we shouldn't do that. that that's literally what was happening. This infighting. And terms were thrown around like sons of God in order to make a distinction between those who were really in God's core and those who were just kind of on God's level. And then in these three verses we have before us, Paul brilliantly summarizes everything that we've just talked about. Hear it again. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. See, it doesn't matter from what family you were born into. It doesn't matter which parts of the law you adhere to. It doesn't matter your pedigree, your background. You're not a son of God because of your status. You're a son of God because you've chosen the way of Jesus. You've chosen the new humanity. You've chosen the reign of life. And so from that, we can begin then asking questions of ourselves. We can invite the band up as we conclude. The first question I have is this. Where do we use the term son of God at Randall? Now, obviously, we don't use that term. But don't we? And I don't necessarily mean just specifically Randall. I mean the church in general. Where have we used the term son of God to distinguish ourselves, kind of the, the, the proper ones in the church, from those that you can be in the pews, but you're not, you're not really one of us? Right? We've used language to distinguish those who are under the reign of death and under the reign of life. We use words like saved and unsaved, or believers and unbelievers. And generally, these labels are needed. Paul himself uses the labels life and death to distinguish it. But what language do we use to distinguish amongst ourselves, amongst the family? If the Jewish Christians use the term like sons of God, what language do we use to separate ourselves? Oh, don't worry, you'll get used to it. That's not how we do things around here. Well, I'd never do that. And Paul draws a line between life and death. He's not interested in those lines anymore. He's not interested in the lines that separate us as a family. 
He's interested in the lines that divide us from death. And the question he has is not which line you stand on over here, but which side of the aisle will you stand on when it comes to life and death? That's what he's after. That's what unifies the church. That is the gospel. So friends, are you standing on a picket line? Where in our church, where in the capital C church of our world have we stood on picket lines staring at one another when the great divide is right next to us and we aren't paying attention? Paul says, I've come to obliterate that line. Jesus has come to obliterate that line so that we can help people who are dying have new life. Our witness to Jesus' reign of life in this world is directly linked to our unity as a church. And the dividing line begins and ends with Jesus and nothing else, even at the expense of our own preferences and comforts and opinions. And secondly, as we make this turn in Romans, where are you still living under the reign of death? Because in chapter 7, Paul describes the wrestling match of living under the reign of life while still struggling with the old humanity. And he says, what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. What is it that you want to do that you don't? And what is it that you do not want to do that you do? Where do you need life breathed into an area of your day where there has been death. And it's not about trying harder because you can't will yourself towards it. It's not behavior modification. Paul says that we must be led by the Spirit of God. It is the Holy Spirit that transforms our nature and gives us a desire for life in the first place. So where do you need to pray a prayer today that says, God, there is this area in my soul that's dark that's still dead. I, I bow to you. I bow to your reign of life. But this one part here, God, I need you to come in and reveal your light to me. And God, I can't do this on my own. I can't try harder. I've tried all the programs. I've tried to muscle it out. I've tried to will it out of me, and I can't. And God, I need your reign of life to shine in this dark part of my soul because I want to stand with you in the reign of life and the reign of light. I want to stand with my brothers and sisters in the church as we are unified, not by the things that are different about us, but unified by Christ so that we can stand and look across the gorge and build bridges to bring people who are dead into life. So God, where is it here that needs to be restored and renewed? bring life into. And one way you can do this, this is just a simple one for me, is to memorize scripture. Find a few passages, things that are connected with what you're going through and commit them to memory. Take a week, take a month, commit them to memory. The psalmist calls it hiding God's word in your heart. And you'll be amazed 
that times where you're struggling, the times where it's, it's the, the oven is hot, that those words you've hidden in your heart come up. And you say, I'm going to choose life today. And I'm going to join my brothers and sisters as we reveal a whole new way to live. The beautiful, salvific, wonderful, life-giving anchor of my soul way to live. Because I'm ready to be set free. Let's pray, God. We are, we are sorry for the ways that we have divided your church. We are sorry for the terms we've used. We're sorry for the ways in which we have called ourselves sons of God at the expense of our other brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have focused so much time fighting and debating and one-upping that we've lost the real fight. We've lost the real dividing line. Give us a heart for those who are dead. And may we put our differences aside. May we come into the unity of the gospel of the righteousness of God. So that we can go to a world that's dying and needs a savior. We repent. We ask you to shed light on those areas of our lives that are still bowing to the reign of death. May we hide your words in our heart, Lord, that you might shed your grace in there. And as we are led by the Holy Spirit, may we be unified in this church, in this region, in this world, to being people from death to life. We love you, Jesus. In your name I pray.